if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Ruth chapter 1 this morning. Ruth chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. The words of Scripture that we're going to be using this morning will be on the screen. But if you do have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn there, use your Bible, underline your Bible, mark in your Bible. Use God's Word as a sword, as a tool to help you in your relationship with Christ. I am convinced that there is one thing that every person needs, every person craves, every person longs for, and it's the exact same thing. It doesn't matter what your personality is. It doesn't matter what your genetic makeup may be. Uh, the one thing that every person craves, every person longs for, is love. Everybody wants to be loved. In an article in Psychology Today, it said this, the first commonality among all humans, is that everyone wants to be loved. It goes on to say, being loved is an unconscious need that goes to the core of what it means to be human. In other words, the, uh, our desire to be loved, our longing for love, is something that's found in every human being, and it's the innermost need that we have as human beings. The problem is, I'm afraid that many of us, and perhaps most of us, have a warped idea of what love is. Some of us have reduced love to a feeling, an emotion. We, we think because we feel a certain way, then certainly we must love. And if we have this feeling, we have this emotional attraction, then we love. And it is true that emotions are a vital part of who we are. And, and our emotions are a part of our love. But our emotions don't define love. And then there are other people today that want to, to uh, put our love with, 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 with a sexual act. And, and we, we, we say we, we make love to somebody. And we're talking about a sex act. And again, it is true that sex between a married couple is a part of love. But sex does not define what love is. I believe the greatest definition of love is found in God's Word. And I believe one of the greatest descriptions of love is found in an Old Testament book that we call the Book of Ruth. Now, the book of Ruth is a short book. It's only four chapters long. It's less than a hundred verses. But it's a book that teaches us some incredible truths about how we are to love others in our relationship with one another. But it also teaches us how God loves us. Now, as I said, the, the book of Ruth is found in the Old Testament toward the first of your Bible. It's found between the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. In chapter 1 of, of Ruth, we're told that it was written during the time of the judges. Now, if you don't remember what the time of the judges was like, it was a time of continual rebellion against God. The people would rebel against God. God would bring about a conqueror who would, who would put the people of God into slavery. The people would cry out to God for deliverance, repenting of their sin. God would show up, bring a deliverer who would set them free. And, and things would be okay for a while. But then the people would turn back to sin and idolatry. And God would again bring another nation to bring his judgment upon the people. The people would cry out to God in repentance and God would raise up and deliver. And that happened over and over and over again in the book of Judges. 
The Bible says two times in the book of Judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a time of lawlessness where everyone did what was right. Everyone defined what was good and what was right by their own definition of good and right. It was a lawless time. But in the midst of this lawless time, we see this incredible story of love in the book of Ruth. Someone called this book a ray of sunshine in an otherwise dark age. Now let me give you a little bit of background if your Bibles are open. Verse 1 tells us that a famine had come to the land of Judah. Now whenever a famine came, the people of God would equate that famine with the judgment of God. Because God had told the people if they were obedient, he would bless the land. But if they were disobedient and they followed after idols, other gods, he would bring a famine to the land, a drought to the land, the crops would die, and then the people would die. And so whenever there was a famine, people recognized God's judgment is upon us. And so there was this famine that, that came across Judah. And in Bethlehem of Judea, there was this man named Elimelech. And he wanted to escape the judgment of God. He wanted to escape the famine of God. So Elimelech and his wife Naomi and his two sons left Bethlehem and traveled about 100 miles north to the land of Moab. Now let me just say to you, going from Bethlehem during a time of judgment because of God's famine and moving to Moab was like going from the frying pan into the fire. I mean, to think that they could move to Moab to escape God's judgment was absolutely crazy. Because God's judgment had already been cast on the people of Moab. The people of Moab were a godless, wicked people. The Moabites came into existence out of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. And from that point on, the people were wicked, ungodly people. It was the Moabites under the leadership of Balaam in the book of Numbers that led the Israelites into sexual sin and worshiping other gods that brought upon God's judgment on the people of Israel as they were in the wilderness. And so the Israelites despised, they hated the Moabites. They felt like the Moabites were under a curse. The Moabites worshiped a God named Chemosh. And they were so loyal to Kamash that they would sacrifice their own babies on the altar to Kamash. And so here's Elimelech. He's taking his family of God followers into this pagan land. Not so that he could share with them the good news of the one true God. But rather to escape the judgment of God. But he didn't find what he was looking for in Moab. While he was there, Elimelech died. His two sons married Moabite, pagan women, and they too died. And so that led Naomi, left Naomi and her two daughters-in-law in this pagan, heathen land to fend for themselves. Now you need to understand, during that time, for a woman to be on her own in a land was like being homeless. They didn't have any economic way to survive. They didn't have any property of their own. And so they had nothing. And so that's where our story begins in Ruth chapter 1 verse 6. I want you to listen to what God's word says. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. 
So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you, to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' home. For I'm too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I, I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than they are for you. Because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. And don't miss that. Here's Naomi. She's a follower of the one true God. And where did she want to send her daughters-in-law back to? A pagan land to serve pagan gods. One of them left and went back to serve these pagan gods. But, Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. And, and then we have these words that we've all heard. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So Naomi heard news from Judah that, that the land had again been blessed by God, that their crops were growing. So she decided to go back. And as she went, her two daughters-in-law were following her, but along the way she stopped. And she told her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-laws, there's nothing for you in Judah. You need to go back to your mother's house and you need to go back to your people and find a husband there. Because if you follow me, no telling what's going to happen to you. You see, in that day, there was this custom that, that if, if a woman was married to a man and he died, then if he had a brother, then that brother would give that woman a son so that the family line could go on. But Naomi had no more children. And she was an old woman. And she said, I'm, I'm too old to have kids. And even if I had kids right now, goodness, it's going to be a while before they're going to ever be able to grow up and be old enough for you to marry them and have kids of your own. You need to go back home. And so Orpah listened to what Naomi said and, and went back home. But Ruth refused to do it. And she gave those words that have become so familiar to us, especially when we go to weddings. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. And your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And that's the beginning of this incredible message about love. And as we walk through these four short chapters we discover four truths about love that I believe really define what real love 
is all about. Because understand, love is more than an emotion. Love is more than some sexual act. Love is much more than that. But what makes this love that is defined and described in this book so amazing is it wasn't a love that a man had for his wife. It wasn't even a love that a wife had for her husband. It was a love that a mother-in-law was given by her daughter-in-law. It was a love of a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. Now, listen. Everybody here knows the story on mother-in-laws, right? I mean, whether it's true or not, we know the story on mother-in-laws. I mean, we've all heard jokes about mother-in-laws, right? I mean, comedians have made millions of dollars telling jokes about mother-in-laws. I heard a story about a family that was at this magic show. And, and the magician did this incredible, incredible magic act. And someone yelled out from the crowd, how did you do that? And the magician yelled back, if I had to tell you, I have to kill you. And the same voice yelled back, well, tell my mother-in-law. Now, now why, would, why would we have jokes? Why would we tell stories about mother-in-laws? Well, because there's some truth to the stories. And not just mother-in-laws, but father-in-laws as well. I mean, understand, I want you to hear me. Whenever a couple gets married, and down you have two families that are interwoven into one, you're going to always have issues. And what I've discovered is that in a mother and father's eyes, their daughter or their son is always right. And so that creates problems. That creates issues. When my wife and I were getting ready to get married, my dad, who was a pastor, he, he made people do premarital counseling. But he didn't really do any premarital counseling for us. I don't know why, but he didn't. But he did give us one piece of advice. One piece of advice. My wife and I were sitting in his office one day and he said, son, there's one thing I would tell you and Sherry is this. When you get married, you need to move at least two hours away from us and from Sherry's parents. Now, why did he tell us that? Well, this was before cell phones and computers and FaceTime. I mean, if you were two hours away and you had problems, you had issues, you were forced to kind of Resolve those problems. You were forced to walk through those issues. And if you were going to call and cry to mommy and daddy, you were going to have to pay for long distance calls. <laughs> and if you were poor like we were, you weren't going to make those long distance calls. And so you were forced to solve your problems. When I do premarital counseling today, one of the sessions that I do is, is talking about conflicts to avoid. And one of the conflicts that I tell couples you need to avoid is keeping your in-laws from becoming outlaws. Because in-laws can become outlaws. That's why I pray that Sherry and I will always be good father-in-law and mother-in-law to our kids. We want to love them. We want to support them. We want to pray for them. We want to give them advice when they ask for it. But apart from that, we pray that we'll have the grace and the wisdom to stay out of it. So that our kids will learn to solve their problems on their own. Because the fact of the matter is, I'm going to always take my kids' side. And that's going to cause a lot of problems. 
And so when we think about this love affair between a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law, it lets us know really how amazing this love is. Now in chapter 1, God teaches us the first truth that I think is the foundational truth about real love. And that is real love, true love, is devoted love. It's a lasting love. It's a loyal love. It, it weathers the storms of life. And as we look at chapter 1, we discover that God gives us four truths about devoted love. Here's truth number one. Devoted love is built on a relationship with God. Don't miss that. If you're going to have a devoted love, it's built on a relationship with God. One of the pledges that Ruth gave to Naomi is, your God will be my God. She refused to go back to the God of her ancestors. Now, we don't know when Ruth came to know the God of the Bible, the God of the Israelites, the one true God. It could have been when, when she married into Naomi's family. It, it could have been as they were sitting around the dinner table, as they would often do, I'm sure, and retell stories about the exodus and God's deliverance and how God had loved his people. It could have been simply by divine uh, opening of her mind. God could have just spoke to Ruth and revealed himself to Ruth. We don't know how Ruth came to know the God of the Bible. But we do know that Ruth came to know the God of the Bible. And I am convinced that any relationship that is going to last has to be built on a relationship with God. In 1 John chapter 4 verse 19 it says this. We love each other because he first loved us. Did you get that? I am able to love others because I have first of all experienced God's love in my life. It's the experience of God's love in me that allows me to turn around and love other people. And the truth of the matter is all relationships are tough. Can I get a witness? Amen. All relationships are tough. I mean, that's why people leave churches every single week. I don't like those people anymore. And the people in the church who are less, we didn't like them either. I mean, that's just how we are. I mean, relationships are tough. And marital relationships, they're the toughest. You know why? Because we not only see people at their best, when we're married to somebody, we see them at their worst, right? And so we see the good, but we also see the bad. I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt, if it were not for my relationship with God, I would not have been married for 37 plus years. Now, please don't misunderstand. My wife, she's incredible, but I'm a sinful wretch. I mean, I really am. I'm selfish. I'm self-centered. Man, I've got so many flaws that if you knew all my flaws, you would, you would boot me off stage right now. I am a sinner saved by the grace of God. And if it were not for God's grace in my life, because I am so selfish and so self-centered at my core, man, I would have walked out of this relationship years ago. But when I experienced God's grace and God's mercy and God's love, it gave me a love for my wife that I never had before. 
John Maxwell, in his book, Building a Foundation for the Family, shares these statistics. I want you to listen to them. One out of three marriages end in divorce. That's a lot, isn't it? One out of three marriages end in divorce. But listen to this. If a marriage takes place in a church, only one out of 50 marriages end in divorce. I mean, you just get married in a church. And your marriage has a better chance of of, of lasting, of standing, the, standing through the difficult times. But listen to this. One out of only 105 marriages end in divorce if the couple attend church together. So, so if a couple makes the commitment, we're going to attend church together, not have your name on a roll, not occasionally pop in at Easter and Christmas. If you came at Easter and you're back this week, welcome. <laughs> Glad you're here. But, but, but that's not, that's not going to cut it. I mean, you regularly attend church with your spouse and your chances of having a divorce drop dramatically. But then listen to this. Only one out of 1,105 marriages end in divorce if the couple attend church regularly and have a family devotion together. Whoa! I mean, you make the commitment to attend church with your spouse and do a family devotion with your spouse, you got a pretty good odd of staying with them through thick and thin. What is this telling me? Devoted love is built on our relationship with God. We have a relationship with God that's changed our life, and it's going to help us weather the difficulties that we're going to face in our relationships. And here's truth number two. Devoted love is based on giving oneself. Now, notice Ruth's pledge, where you go, where you stay, your people, your God. I mean, Ruth wasn't in this relationship because she saw a sugar mama in Naomi that was going to give her everything that she possibly wanted in life. I mean, understand, her going to Bethlehem with Naomi wasn't a good thing. She would have had an easier life going back home to her mama. Naomi was a widow who had lost her land. They had nothing. And yet Ruth was committed to her. I mean, Naomi even knew that, that she had it tough. Naomi said, God's fist is against me. She went on to say that, that, that my name is now bitterness. I mean, she was having a difficult time. And yet, Ruth said, I'm going with you. Why? Because it wasn't about having her needs met. She was going with Naomi so that she could meet Naomi's needs. By the way, that's what love is. You get into a relationship not because you find someone and go, wow, I bet that person could meet my needs for the rest of my life. No, you get into a relationship because you look at that person and you go, I want to spend the rest of my life meeting their needs. Now, that's counterintuitive because we're selfish people. It's all about us, me, my, what I want, what I desire, my needs. But understand, devoted love isn't about having your needs met. It's about meeting the needs of other people. I've done a lot of counseling in my life as a pastor. And I can tell you one thing. I've never had anybody come into my office, sit in the chair in front of me and say, Pastor, I need your help. I say, well, what can I do? 
and, and have them say, I'm just terrible at meeting my spouse's needs. Can you help me meet my spouse's needs? I've never had anyone come to my office and ask for help in meeting their spouse's needs. But I've had hundreds of people come into my office, sit in the chair in front of me, say, Pastor, I need help. I go, why do you need help? My spouse isn't meeting my needs. My, mine, me, selfish. Then understand. I know it's tough because we all have needs. And we all down inside want our needs met. But understand marriage and any relationship isn't first and foremost getting into this relationship because of what you can get out of it. A relationship is about what you can give to it. And so it's selfless. Selfishness is the number one enemy to any relationship. Third, devoted love is bigger than the circumstances we face. I heard about this man who was on his deathbed and his wife was there with him and his wife's name was Mavis. And he said, Mavis, you've always been here with me. You were here with me in 1942 when we went through bankruptcy. You were with me in that car accident in 1953. You were there in the earthquake in 1964. And you were there right beside my side, when, right by my side when I had the heart attack in, in 1975. And now as I'm here dying, you're right here beside me. Maybe it's I've come to the conclusion that you're a curse. Now listen, I say that to say, if anybody could have said, you're a curse, it's Ruth to Naomi. Naomi had a tough life. Her husband died out from under her. Her two sons died. She was a homeless woman in a land that was cruel to women without men. But yet Ruth stuck with her. When I marry somebody, I use traditional vows because I believe these traditional vows are the best vows. And, and what we say is, for better or for, say it, worse. For richer or for poorer in sickness and in health till death do us part. See, most of us, we like the richer. We like the health. We like the good times. But when the bad times come, no matter how those bad times show up, we want to bail. We want to run. We want to get out. It may be because our spouse isn't who we thought they were. So we want to get out. It may be because they don't live up to the promises they made. So we want to get out. It may be things that are absolutely beyond their circumstances. But they happen and we want to get out. But devoted love is bigger than the circumstances we face. In his book, Until Death Do Us Part, Tom Burgess tells a story. And he tells this story much better than I could, I could tell it. So I just want to read it to you. The story begins in a small church. A request came from a man for communion to be brought to his wife. The preacher sent out a young 19-year-old man. The house was small. The hospital bed took up the entire living room. Peggy was the lady in the bed. Peggy's mom was there and 
said her son-in-law John would be home soon. The mother showed the young man pictures and told her the story. Peggy had been gorgeous, a 9.5 on a scale of 10. The first wedding anniversary found her on crutches. The second, in a hospital bed. The third, a vegetable, unable to understand anything. John and Peggy were now in their sixth year of marriage. Peggy was five foot six inches tall when she married, but the neuromuscular disease had reduced her to under five feet, and she weighed less than 80 pounds. When John came home, he quickly stepped past the young man as though he wasn't there. He kissed Peggy and told his unresponding wife all about the day's activities. He then turned and said, hi, I'm John. What's your name? I want to thank you for coming. You probably think my wife doesn't understand what is happening. I'm not sure. I don't believe in your church, but she does. If she had been well, she would have been there today. And since she couldn't, I wanted her to have the Lord's Supper. John gently placed a little cracker and grape juice on Peggy's tongue. She threw up, which often happened. It was all over her face and her clothes. John took four or five quick steps to the kitchen where he got a nausea pill and some warm water and a cloth. He began cleaning her while he visited with the young man as though nothing had happened. As the months passed, the young man got to know John and his mother-in-law better. Peggy's mom confessed one day, I wouldn't blame John if he left. When he said, I do, he had no idea this would happen. The young man later mentioned this to John. Do you realize that Peggy's mother would, wouldn't hold it against you if you left and found someone else? John said he knew that. The young man said, do you mind if I ask why you don't? But John's answer was crisp but emotional. Because that's not what I told her I would do. I told her I would stay by her until she died and she's not dead. If the walls were reversed, she'd be right there taking care of me. The young man became a preacher, moved away, but he kept in touch. Things didn't change. And after surviving 17 years in that condition, Peggy died. Her husband phoned the young man and told him the news. And then the book goes on to say this. People who look each other in the eyes and say, I love you, need to make sure they understand what they mean. If you mean like the person, tell him or her that. If you mean infatuation, say infatuation. If you don't mean Peggy and John love, do them a favor. Don't say love because what it means is I'm staying with you until you're dead or I'm dead and there is nothing going to stop that. When I do premarital counseling, another thing that I do is I, I put a blank sheet of paper before the man and the woman that I'm counseling with. And I ask them to take a few minutes and write down any and every reason that they would leave the person that they're about to marry. I give them a while to write. I ask them when you're through, turn it over. Don't share it. Don't say it. Just turn it over. And then after they get through, I look them in the eyes and I say, if you wrote anything, if you wrote anything at all, you need to walk out this door right now and not get married. Because the reality is what you wrote down could quite possibly happen. We're sinners. We're fallen people. We blow it. We mess up. Junk happens. And if you're not willing to say today before God to this person, I'm with you to the end then by God, 
you don't need to get married to them. When Sherry and I got married 37 years ago, one of the things that I did, it was before the internet, um, before um, dictionary.com, any of that stuff. And so I had a red Webster's Dictionary that I used for school. And I set Sherry down and I turned to divorce in the dictionary. And then I took a black marker and I marked out the word. And I looked at Sherry and I said, "Hun, I want you to know that when we get married in a few days, this word is not in my vocabulary. You can hurt me. You can dishonor me. You can break my heart. You can discredit me. You can do whatever you want to me. But I will not leave you. And I'm not saying that to shame you if you've experienced divorce. I'm just saying to you that are married right now, that's what devoted love looks like. It says, I'm with you through thick and thin, good and bad, whatever may happen. And then one final thing, devoted love knows no boundaries. I read about this man and his fiance who went to the courthouse to get a marriage license. You know, you got to get a marriage license to get married. And so they went to the courthouse, they got the marriage license, and the clerk told the man, this marriage license is good for 30 days. And he didn't understand that what she was saying is you got 30 days to get married. And he said, I don't want one of those. I want one of those till death do you part <laughs> marriage license. And that's what marriage is. There's a recent Gallup poll. 73% of people under 45 said the idea of being committed to one person for life is useless and unworkable. 73%, 45 and under. Being married to one person for life is unworkable. It's useless. I'm here to tell you, no, it's not. And the dividends are worth it. If you stick with it in the bad times, you're going to enjoy the good times. But you've got to have a devoted, devoted love. I heard about this couple who had been married for 39 years. And, and during the first years of their marriage, they had some tough times. And about their 10th year, they were having a terrible argument. And the wife said, I'm done. I'm out of here. And she went to the closet. She got a suitcase, put it on the bed. And she began to pack her clothes. And the man said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm packing. I'm leaving. He went to the closet. He got a suitcase put it on the bed he started putting his clothes in the suitcase and she said what are you doing he said well if you're leaving I am too <laughs> I'm married for 39 years see devoted love knows no boundaries the only thing that separates devoted love is death that's it and can I tell you that's the kind of love that God has for us in Romans 8, it says, what can separate us from the love of God? And then Paul gives us all these things. And then he says, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the kind of love that God has for you. Aren't you glad? Man, I am.
Because if God's love for me was conditional, I would have lost it at least in year one, if not on day one. But it's not. It's unconditional. God looks at me and all of my weakness and all of my frailness. And he says, you're mine. I love you. I'm with you. And that's how God wants us to love those that we're in relationship with. And that's a devoted love. And if you have that kind of love for your spouse, for your children, for your church family, for your neighbors, for whatever else, it's going to change everything about you. But the reality is, you can express that kind of love, but if you haven't experienced God's love, you've missed it all. And so have you experienced God's love? Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves us so much that in spite of our sin and rebellion against him, he sent his one and only son to make the payment for our sin, death, so that we could enter into a relationship with him. It's love. And if you've never humbled yourself before him and given your life to him, I beg you today, don't leave here without experiencing his love. So would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? With your head bowed, with your eyes closed. If you're here and today you're saying, I need God's love. And I'm ready to give my all to him. And I encourage you to pray this prayer, dear God. I humbly come to you today. Admitting I'm a sinner. I've failed you. Forgive me. I don't want to live in rebellion anymore. God, I know you love me. You sent Jesus to die in my place. What greater love could ever be shown? Today, I'm receiving your love. Placing my trust in Jesus. I'm giving you my life. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. Amen.